We're going to continue our walk through Paul's letter to the Philippians after a break that we had for Advent for New Year's. And if you're just joining us, there's two things that you need to know about the letter of Philippians that I've been wrestling with as I've been preparing this sermon series. And it's this. First, Paul's letter to the Philippians is a letter of joy. Paul can't say anything in this letter, it seems, without connecting it to his joy or to the joy of the church. So that in chapter 1, he prays with joy. He rejoices that Jesus is being proclaimed and advanced. He wants the Philippians to increase in their joy. In chapter 2, which we're about to embark in, he wants the church to complete his joy. He rejoices in the church. He sends a man by the name of Epaphroditus. Why? For their joy. And then in chapter 3, he tells the church to receive him with joy, Epaphroditus. And then he rejoices in the Lord. And he concludes in chapter 4, telling the church that, he is, that they are his joy. And he tells them twice to rejoice in the Lord. And then he rejoices in the Lord himself. How fitting. This is a letter of joy. And yet, number 2, I said there's two things. Number 2... This is also a letter from jail. It's a letter of joy and it's a letter from jail. And that combination to me blows my mind. I'm wrestling with that right there. There must be something about the joy that Paul is talking about. That the joy that is described for us in the scriptures. There must be something different about that joy and the joy that we usually settle for or search for in this world. Because too often the categories that I have for joy would not fit with how Paul uses joy. He is in prison. He does not hide the fact that he is awaiting a trial and possibly his execution. There must be something there. And that's why we're studying Philippians together. We are chasing after Christian joy in this letter. As you can tell, we just finished the first chapter. This morning, we will begin at the first verse of chapter 2. I'll read the text. You can follow along with me. We'll pray a quick prayer to ask God's help, and then we'll dig in. This is God's Word. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy. By being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient. To the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, would you speak to our hearts for your servants are listening. This is something that only you can do. So open our hearts. Make them receptive to what you would have us here this morning. And it's in Jesus' name we pray and ask this. Amen. So Christmas is officially over as of Friday. Anybody do 12 days of Christmas? I don't. I'm, I'm, I'm terrible in that way, but I'm glad if you do. It's over. Christmas is over. And as I reflect on my Christmas, I always, it seems, regret how consumerist my heart is during the year. It's a perpetual theme for me. And so, for instance, we always have a gift exchange with my in-laws. And if I'm honest, I'm going to be totally honest with you. Every year, I hope that a certain in-law gets my name for that gift exchange. (laughs) Just being honest. I'm a consumer. And it's not just Christmas. It's really not just Christmas. I feel like it's amplified in Christmas. But in every arena of my life, and I know this to be true because the underlying nagging question that I have that creeps up in my heart behind every single decision that I make is this. Are you ready? What do I get out of it? If I'm perfectly honest, behind every single decision that I make in my life is the nagging question, well, what do I get out of it? What do I get out of this? We could be choosing a restaurant to be going out to eat to, and I will think, well, what am I going to get out of this? Amen? Anybody else? (laughs) Bigger decisions too. Life-altering decisions. What am I getting out of this? I think we all struggle here. Because it's the air we breathe. Uh, Polish sociologist Zygmunt Bauman, he says we live in a consumerist age. And living in a consumerist age means that consumerism is a posture that we all are sort of taught. We are catechized to be consumers from the very day we breathe air. And so, for instance, he says, consumerism has redefined what it means to be responsible. I'm quoting him. He says, responsibility now means responsibility to oneself. You owe this to yourself. You deserve this. That's what it means to be responsible. Responsible choices, he goes on, are those moves serving the interests and satisfying the desires of self. Students of religion and culture have noticed how the Christian church in America is less of a counterculture against consumerism and is more, has actually more in common with consumerism than we dare admit. We've adopted, I think we've adopted the golden rule of consumerism, even though we've baptized it with our own words. We come to church asking, what do I get out of it? Or we ask God in our prayers, what am I getting out of this, God? Tom Rainer, he, he sort of makes a living asking and interviewing people who have left the church. <laughs> he sort of makes a living on this. And then he writes books about it. Well, here's some direct quotes from some folks who have left the local church. The worship leader refused to listen to me about the songs and music I wanted. The pastor did not feed me. 
No one from my church visited me. I was not about to support the building program that they wanted. They moved the time of worship services, and it messed up my schedule. There's some laughter. Listen, he admits, and I'm glad he does, his response to this is nuanced. He admits that there are appropriate instances where the church fails in their duty, fails in their mission to feed the flock, to shepherd the flock well. But he wonders if, and I'm quoting him, the main reason people leave church is because they have an entitlement mentality rather than a servant mentality. Well, in our passage this morning that we just heard read, God wants us to move from an entitlement community to become a servant community. God is calling us from consumerism to calling. I'm struck by this. In the very first verse of chapter, 12, of chapter 2, if you take a look, Paul begins by giving out four ifs. Four ifs. Take a look. He says, if there's any encouragement in Christ. And he says, if there's any comfort from love. If there's any participation or fellowship, the word fellowship, in the Holy Spirit. If there's any affection and sympathy. And now when Paul says if, he's not doubting. He's not saying, I wonder if you have these things. He's simply saying, because you have these things. Because you have been gifted with this encouragement from Christ, this comfort from God's love, this fellowship with the Holy Spirit, because you have, in other words, been lifted into the whole, the whole sort of life of God, Son, Father, Spirit, as you see it outlined in that first verse. In short, Paul's saying, you have everything. You have everything. And now because of that, Paul is saying, do not simply consume that blessing. It's interesting. It doesn't complete Paul's joy. He says, now complete my joy in verse 2. You have these things, now complete my joy. It doesn't complete Paul's joy as a good pastor that they simply have this blessing. What would complete his joy is if these blessings sort of spilled out of them into the life of others around them. That's what would complete his joy. Paul, in other words, is saying, let's not be consumers even of God's gifts, but let's see God's gifts as deposits given to us to now then bless others in our community, to live as a community. It's amazing. And so I want to ask the question this morning and briefly address it from this passage, this. What would happen if we, Hope, moved from a consumer posture to Calling. What if we move from entitlement to servanthood? And I think two things at least would happen as outlined in this text. And the first is this unity would happen. And the second is this humility would happen. Both are profoundly countercultural and both are very, very beautiful. And so let's take a look at each. We are called to unity. I think we are trained by consumerism. To only think in terms of I. But the Apostle Paul here and all of Scripture assumes that the gospel will produce a certain kind of unity. If consumerism trains us to think only in terms of I, the free gift of Jesus trains us to think in terms of unity. Which, by the way, involves other people. (laughs) As part of the deal. Paul says, and this is what it would literally sound like in the original language. He says, complete my joy, verse 2. 
by thinking the same thing, having the same love, being together in soul or soul bonded, thinking one thing. So what does this mean? What does this mean? Well, first, what it can't mean. It can't mean uniformity. Uniformity tends to be externally similar, but then on the deeper internal matters, quite separate. I think of school uniforms. Anybody grew up with school uniforms? School uniforms was a uniform thing. You had uniformity on the exteriors, but interior, it didn't, there's a lot of divisions. A lot of divisions. And that can't be Paul's vision. For one, we read in Acts 16 about the formation of this church in Philippi, and we learn that Lydia is the first convert. And who's the second? A Philippian jailer. Lydia was a cultural elite, a wealthy businesswoman. And she was probably Jewish. The Philippian jailer, on the other hand, and I learned this from Craig Keener, they were often harsh with prisoners. Sometimes they were slaves themselves. They would get a rise out of torturing their prisoners. And by the way, he was a Gentile, a Roman citizen. And so here you have Lydia, and here you have this Philippian jailer as the first members of this Philippian church. And you cannot tell me then that what Paul is describing here is uniformity. It says their households were baptized and their households became the church. And so these are two people, actually two households that would never interact on natural terms. And yet, they have something that is uniting them. So it can be shallow uniformity. We know it can be uniformity because elsewhere, Paul compares the church to a body with many different gifts. So that the eye can't say to the hand, I don't need you. Francis Schaeffer says there are no little people in the church. We don't say to a pinky, oh, you're just a pinky. We don't need you. No, everybody is needed. So he can't mean uniformity. I think about Paul in Galatians 2. If you're not familiar with what happens there, Paul basically calls out Peter for putting national and racial identity above union with Christ. After all, consider Jesus and his 12 disciples. Have you ever thought about how within Jesus' first Community surrounded and centered around Jesus the Messiah is Matthew the Roman tax collector and Simon the zealot. Have you ever thought about that? A zealot. A zealot was a Jewish nationalist that hated Rome. Matthew is a tax collector who is a Jewish man who is basically saying eh to his Jewish identity and hey, come on, pay me to the Ro- his Roman identity. And Jesus... Brings them both together into his posse. That's what happens. This would be like having someone from Hamas and a Zionist together in the same church. So it can be uniformity, friends. It cannot be uniformity. What is it then? It's unity. 
Look again at the text. Paul expects that our union with Christ would result in the deepest kind of unity. The same mind, the same love, even the same soul. I love the word. He has a one word, uh, Greek word that he uses. When our translation says being in full accord, that's kind of lame. I think that's kind of lame. We're in full accord. What does it really mean? Soul union. That's what it means. Or same soulness. I have an expression that I like to use with some of my college friends. Soul brothers. I have some soul brothers. I have some brothers and I have some soul brothers. Paul's saying that we are all at the deepest level to have unity. Even as, especially as, we have different skin color. Especially as we have different nationality and ethnicity. Especially as we have different tongues that we speak with. Different languages that we express things with. Different national heritages. Different earnings Different social categories, especially as we have those things. What do we have is we have a unity that is deeper, way deeper. So it's not uniformity that the gospel calls us to. This week at my home group, as we were meeting, we were doing a study of the passage, it's a paragraph above chapter 2, which speaks a lot about unity and community and all the rest. And, and we were laughing at ourselves because about a half hour into our study of this passage, we discovered that, hey, this is talking a lot about community. And we had up to that point just been simply talking about how this impacts me, how this impacts me, how this impacts me. And we, we laughed about it. But wasn't that a telling experience? There is a passage that is expressively about community and unity. And even we, as as a community, were gathered to read the scriptures together. And all we could see is how it applied to us. And so what I suggest us doing is to start thinking corporately more and more. Instead of individually. Some things you can do. Read your Bible in community. Don't stop reading your Bible individually, but begin to read your Bible in community. Pray in community. Don't stop praying individually in your prayer closet as Jesus would have you. But pray in community with people that are different than you. I would encourage you to pursue community. It is something we must pursue. I want to ask you another question. Are you settling for uniformity when God is calling you to deep unity? I think our church, Hope Presbyterian Church, will be at its worst. And I mean this. If we serve as a mere haven for thoughtful, well-educated Christians who look, think, And talk the same way. As we experience dislocation in the city. We will be at our best, my friends, if the welcome of Jesus, which is our mission, extends to people who are not like us. That is something way deeper than uniformity. It's unity. We're also called the humility and, frankly, the two interact. You can't really have the unity without the humility that's described later in this text, actually. 
Much of what Paul does as you're reading Paul's letters, think flow of thought, think flow of thought. We're trained to think maybe outlines. We're trained to think in different kind of categories. But think flow of thought. He's writing a letter after all. And the flow of thought that we have here is we have, he says, okay, you have all this amazing stuff. I I make my joy complete. I want that spilling out into a sort of unity that's not uniformity. And now what? Now what? Humility. That's what? Humility. Now, what's it say in verse 3? He says, do nothing from rivalry or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you, that's everyone here, to look not only to his own interests, but also the interests of others. So what is humility? We have a saying in our house that my wife got from her summer camp, and it, we can't really improve on it. It's God first. Anybody else? Complete this. Others second. I'm third. It's putting God first. Paul says, don't do anything, verse 3, from selfish ambition or vain glory. The old translations have it. Vain glory. That's empty glory. So don't do things out of empty glory. Instead of living for your own glory, you live for the glory of someone else, namely God. That's what it means to be humble. You are decentering yourself. And placing God in the center. And that is the definition of humility. Is when you are no longer living your life with yourself as the focal sort of navel of the universe. God is now at the navel of the universe. God first. Everything else is empty glory. Vain glory. Paul says conceit. But then it's others second. It's God first. Others second. Paul says count others more significant than yourself. Yes, that's what scripture says. There's a command there. You're counting others more significant than yourself. And then ourselves third. Paul says, look not to your own interest only, but to the interests of others. That assumes we have self-interest. That assumes we should continue taking showers and brushing our teeth and looking after our savings account. But to the same extent that you look after yourself You ought to be looking after others with that same concern. That's the challenge. John Dixon, he's a professor of history at Macquarie University in Australia. He defines humility this way. I'll say it twice. It's really good. The noble choice to forgo your status, deploy your resources, or use your influence for the good of others before yourself. The noble choice to forgo your status, to deploy your resources, or use your influence for the good of others before yourself. How do we pursue this? Well, Paul shows us with this amazing passage. He says in verse 5, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And he just busts into this unprecedented, what's called a hymn or a song. Some people wonder, did Paul write this or was he quoting this? 
Why are they asking this question? Because it's so glorious. It's like he busts into a poetry. He can't just talk about the work of Jesus in bland terms. He has to sing of the work of Jesus, of the humility of Jesus. And what is he saying? He says, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. What does that mean? That means that though God is co-eternal and completely equal to God, Father, he does not leverage his divine privileges for himself. But what? He deploys his privileges for the sake of others. It's not a thing to be grasped in this sense. He doesn't grasp them to leverage them for his own glory. He grasps them and he leverages them to serve the people he came to save. That's you. Jesus is king of the universe and he, in his obedience... Became a criminal on the cross. It says it here. Made himself nothing. Taking the form of a servant. And being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form. So what you're seeing here is you're seeing a descent. Such that he, the king of the universe, was born in a dog bowl to begin. Which is what? He was born into. A trough. We say a manger. What's a manger? It's what animals eat out of. Okay, so let's begin there. But it goes deeper still. It goes deeper still. He says he became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And therefore, and therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, Yahweh. So he is vindicated. He is vindicated. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's our mission call. When we see Jesus, our heart sings and we confess. And we bow. Not begrudgingly. And so how do we pursue humility? Well, Paul, I think, is just simply saying, Jesus, look at Jesus. So in one sense, we get an example of humility that inspires. That's to be sure. And the imitation of Christ theme in the scripture is there. Imitate Christ. Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. So it's there. And so we can read this and say, wow, what an amazing example of humility. But I think Paul is pressing us further still. Because he says, have this Mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Paul is saying this, Jesus' finished work of humility and exaltation, this is actually yours. In part because he did it for you, but also because he united you to this work. He empowers you. So let me put it this way. Many of us, we read this, And because we're do-gooders, we see the example of Jesus. Let me just encourage you to look at it from a different angle and see the empowerment of Jesus. Not the example of Jesus so much as the empowerment of Jesus. His life of humility is ours. Jesus lived a life of a slave. Jesus lived a life of obedience for us. 
And his obedience gave him a cross. Why? Because he not only obeyed for us, but he suffered for us in our place. So I I was able to confess to you my consumerism, and that will be an ongoing struggle. What I must do in that struggle is I must see Jesus' obedience in my place. And you have to do that too. His obedience took him to the cross instead of you. And then he's vindicated by his Father for us, which is, a, which is a description of our salvation by grace. And when we have this love, we are enabled to no longer use others, but we can now serve them. Organizational psychologist and Wharton professor, and I've used this before because it's so good, Adam Grant. If you've read his books or heard of him, he's observed that there are three kinds of people, givers, takers, and matchers. Givers, takers, and matchers. We are all by default takers and matchers. What is most rare is a true giver. Well, if we take the Bible seriously, we will not be surprised that we are called to be givers, but none of us really are. We settle for matching, don't we? When we give something secretly, we want them to match it. And we resent when they don't. But we were made to be givers, to give God glory, to give others our attention, our eyes, putting others first, our respect. We're made to give, but instead, what do we do? We use God and we use others. We take. We're takers, not givers. We're at best, we're matchers. The Bible calls this sin. The African church father, Augustine, he defines sin this way in a nifty Latin phrase, in curvatus in se, which means curved in on yourself. To sin is to be curved in on yourself. No longer giving glory to God. No longer giving sacrificially to others. But taking. Taking and using. And we use and we exploit. Not just the created world, but we use and exploit others. Even the most loved people in our lives. Martin Luther, he wrote, Scripture describes man as so curved in on himself that we use not only physical but even spiritual goods for our own purposes and in all things seek only ourselves. That's our problem. That's our sin problem. And it destroys everything. And it is sin. It is rebellion against the holy God. But listen, Jesus as we just heard and as we just read, is the only consistent giver in the history of the world. In fact, Paul is probably in writing this, connecting the life of Jesus and contrasting it with the life of Adam. That grasping terminology. Who else grasped? Do you remember? Adam grasped for the apple. This is how it works. Jesus came in as the better Adam. Jesus came in as the perfect Adam. Jesus came in as Adam number two. And 
He actually gave. And gave and gave. And if you follow the trajectory of this poem, he gave and gave and gave and gave until he was smashed on the ground. And then he was exalted. Why? For you. And so, here's what happens. Our hearts get filled and we receive this giving. And slowly, but surely, we start giving. Because we don't need anything anymore. We don't need to use our spouse. We don't need to use our children. We don't need to use God. Lynn Kohick, she is, I think, probably quoting Dietrich Bonhoeffer when she says, when you really taste this, what Jesus has done, when you don't just see it but receive it, you become decentered. The gospel decenters you. May we become a church of decentered and therefore fully alive people. We have everything. Do you remember? We have encouragement in Christ. We have comfort from God's love. We, we have fellowship with the Holy Spirit. And we have affection and sympathy. We have everything. Let's give. Jesus, we need you to shape our hearts so that we can become givers. I pray, Lord, that our church would look like what Paul's yearning for here, that we could, in a sense, complete his joy thousands of years later by becoming not a church of uniformity, but unity, and not a church of centered people, but decentered people, humility. And we need your work to do it. I pray that you would. In Jesus' name, we ask this.